This is A Better Night's Sleep, a podcast about sleep, sleep disorders, and evidence-based treatment from military sleep experts. I'm Dr. Julie Kinn with the Defense Health Agency. And today we are joined again by Colonel Bryant Robertson at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you again for joining us. Today we are talking about children and their sleep issues. Right. And one thing I'm interested in is sleepwalking. Is is this a rare condition or something that you see often? It's not rare at all. It's the first thing parents should know. Wow. Children sleepwalk much more than adults. Really? Yes. So it's a problem that almost always if someone's sleepwalking as an adult, they sleepwalk as a child. And what you'll you'll see is that it tends to go away usually the beginning of adolescence, so around age 13, 14. For children, very common to sleep. I'm assuming as soon as they're out of a crib, this is something that we need to be aware of. How, how do you know if your child is likely to be a sleepwalker? Usually the parents find out when they see their, when they hear uh, some noise in the night and they go investigate and they see their child. Oh, no. Who is sort of stumbling around. They're walking, but they're not doing it very well. And then they don't respond when you call their name. Uh, and that's how you know you have a sleepwalker. And maybe this says more about me as a parent, but if I saw my child out of bed, I would just assume they're trying to sneak around the house and watch TV. So it's not sneaking, first of all. You shouldn't, you should always think about sleepwalking as sort of an automatic behavior. So when we sleep, there's a particular part of your sleep called really deep sleep, or sometimes uh, sleep doctors will call it the non. REM sleep stage three or stage four. So it's really deep sleep. This usually happens in the first third of the night. And children tend to have a lot more of this in three sleep or the stage three sleep than adults do. So that may be one of the reasons why we see more sleepwalking is that there's just more time spent in that kind of deep sleep when sleepwalking happens. During this time, people do not remember what happened. So if they if you wake these patients up and they've been sleepwalking, they'll be confused, they won't know where they are, and they certainly won't know that they've been sleepwalking. The safety issues have got to be incredible, especially for kids in bunk beds and loft beds. Right. So first of all, bunk beds are obviously a hazard and so a child that sleepwalks should not be in a bunk bed. Right. The second thing is that we might consider what we want to do is make it difficult for them to hurt themselves, okay? Mm. So there are various strategies parents have used from guardrails on the bed that sort of keep the child corralled, which might actually be enough for some, to some parents will put little child locks on the door of the bedroom. And these are, these are the plastic ones. So in an emergency, you know, any adult could just break it by pushing really hard. But it's enough to make it hard to open the door. Baby gates are a really common strategy, probably more popular than anything else. Usually parents have a couple of them in the attic they can pull out again. So they put baby gates up, especially at the top of stairs. That's where we really worry about people getting hurt is that they'll start sleepwalking downstairs and then stumble and fall. Leaving the house is another issue. Oh, my. Yeah, right. So if we have someone that's sleepwalking, you obviously don't want them to leave the house. In fact, we do see children from time to time in the clinic where the sleepwalking, they did, parents discover the sleepwalking because the child's found outside oh, no. asleep or they wake up when they go outside when they're asleep. Or they just wake up in the morning because they decided to lay down in the yard and then <laughs> they find that they wake up there. So, it, I mean, it, it's 
again, these children are moving around and they're not under conscious control. So you have to keep that in mind when you approach a child with sleepwalking. That's my next question for you, because maybe this is a cultural thing, but I think in some groups there's possibly, it's a myth, that never wake a sleepwalker. Just turn them around and head them back to bed. So it's actually more of a danger for the person doing the waking. And it's a good rule. It's a good rule. But the reason it's a good rule is that you can get hurt. So remember, these people do not know that what they're doing. The children don't know what they're doing. And they can actually flail around. There could be a long period of confusion. The best advice we usually tell parents is if you see your child sleepwalking in the hallway is to verbally tell them to go back to bed. Sometimes this works. Sometimes this works. The child knows where the bedroom is. They tend to go back there, gently guiding them, physically guiding them and turning them around and heading them back to bed is generally what we recommend. So if you just say verbally, somewhere in their subconscious, that's kind of like sinking in and they're understanding that direction. It's in there. It's in there. And patients bring me videos. The parents bring me videos all the time of their children sleepwalking. And you can hear the parents say, you know, hey, Johnny, go back to bed. And the child will sort of stumble and clumsily turn around and sort of head back down the hall. And the parents will follow them and then they get back in bed. So if it's an adult, can you tell them to go do the dishes? No. <laughs> so we wish. Unfortunately, we're not that coordinated, right? So oh, So bad. these are basic automatic behaviors, right? What do what do humans do, right? What these are automatic things. We walk. The other sleep things which I know we're going to talk about later, we talk, right? We eat. That's another automatic thing that we do and and even uh, have sex is another automatic thing. So these are really fundamental sort of reptile level things that humans can do, and we can do them without being awake. So, we, yeah, we really are talking about just the basic functions. So right. sleep talking, is that caused by the the same part of our sleep that causes us to sleepwalk? Right. So it happens in that stage three sleep or in three sleep, as we call it. It happens in that deep sleep, and people sleep talk. They don't remember what they said. No recollection of this conversation. And sometimes they can even sort of have a quasi-intelligent conversation with the person. Uh, they may even answer questions, but they don't make any sense. Right. Uh, they're not dreaming. It's not the same thing. Huh. Uh, we remember our dreams. We don't remember these episodes of sleep talking. So not the same thing. I always kind of put it as like this. If you have someone that is having one of these parasomnias like sleep talking or sleepwalking and they don't get out of bed, they're probably just talking. If they get out of bed, they're sleepwalking. Okay. And but there's not really a functional difference between the two other than what the pa- the patient's behavior is. And it sounds like there's probably not a treatment for the sleepwalking except for just making a safe environment. Exactly. That's the treatment for it. Sometimes medications can be used, but they are not very effective. You really just need to keep the patient in their bed, keep their patient safe if we can. Now, what about sleep eating? It strikes me that's not quite as dangerous, but still not good. It depends. So I've had patients try to eat and drink various substances. So one patient that kind of alarmed me or just happened recently, it's a 12 or 13 year old who came in and had tried to drink nail polish remover from his, from his mother's nightstand. So like they can get themselves in trouble with sleep eating because you're not, again, you're not awake. You're just going through the motions of it and you'll pick up things and try to eat or drink them. I had one memorable patient who tried to drink paper. That was the, the story that she gave us. I had another patient who woke up in the kitchen, had put some Cheerios on a plate and was pushing them around with a fork. 
So it wasn't actually eating them, but, you know, it was kind of going through these, right? It was going through the motions of eating and the, the, the natural things that people do when they eat. And I had not heard of sexomnia until you mentioned that. But I'm guessing that's, again, part of the same sleep cycle. Right. So this is the same problem. And, and functionally, the sleep doctors, we think of it as the same issue as sleepwalking, sleep talking, and, and, and eating in your sleep. But sexomnia or having sex in your sleep is its own special thing. It can be really embarrassing for patients to talk about. Um, we often have to ask them. No one really volunteers it very much. But we ask them when we find a patient that tells us they've been sleepwalking or something like that, we'll ask about sexomnia too. That's got to be something where there has to be a lot of frank discussion with you and your bed partner. Yes. So the big issue, so married people tend to do okay with this. They, you know, especially if they're happily married, they they get it that their their spouse is sort of moving around and pawing at them or something like that. Again, this is just like the sleep eating. They're not eating well and they're not like having sex well <laughs> so what you know there's thrusting movements but they're not taking off their clothes necessarily or sometimes they are so it's that kind of thing it's clumsy a partner would understand okay this isn't their normal pattern i can tell this isn't them trying to have sex with me the one worry i have about sexomnia is that you don't want to be in bed with someone you don't want to have sex with when you have this problem. So, and this is a big issue with parents and grandparents in particular. Obviously, you can think that like if something like this happened with a child in the bed, that would, you know, that family would never get over it. Even if everyone everyone understood that it was sexomnia, there's no coming back from that. Absolutely. And co-sleeping is common. It is. And you have to be careful. If there's a history of sexomnia, we warn our patients very sternly that you shouldn't get involved with that. The other thing I think I should mention, too, is like sleepovers and with teenagers, mm -hmm. right? So hmm. after puberty, this becomes more of a, an issue. And they have their friends there. And they may get themselves in situations, especially in like group sleepovers, that they really don't want to be in. Sure. So it sounds like... If you are a sleepwalker or if your adolescent kid is a sleepwalker, then this is an area to start discussing post-puberty uh, to be aware that, that it's a possibility. If your child is a sleepwalker and they're sleeping in the same room as another kid, a lot of our kids share rooms, then it's something to have some frank discussions about and possibly consider a different sleeping arrangement and maybe passing up on those sleepovers. Maybe so. So what makes these parasomnias more likely? Are there any predictors? Yes. So there is one important one, and it's a really common thing. Insufficient sleep. Hmm. So people that do not get enough sleep tend to have more of these episodes. Another piece of advice uh, that we give to our patients with parasomnias is mm -hmm. to make sure that they get adequate sleep. For adults, it's seven to eight hours a night. For teenagers, it's about nine hours a night. And for children that are younger, it goes up from about nine to 12 hours, depending on their age. Interesting. Well, that's another... I mean, I guess it's not easy, but that's another controllable thing we can do in addition to making a safer environment in prevention is just making sure they're getting enough good, high-quality sleep. Absolutely. That's correct. And it also strikes me that in our previous episode when we talked about allergies and sleep apnea, that again, 
those kinds of issues are also going to affect quality of sleep, which can lead to sleep deprivation and more fatigue. Right. So all these things play into each other. So sleep medicine is pretty interesting because it's very narrow in that mm-hmm. it's focused on sleep, but also very broad in that there's lots of factors that can come into play here. So if you have a patient with parasomnias and they have untreated allergic diseases, for instance, like they may have more parasomnias when their allergies are bad and less when they're right. better. If you take a, a teenager doing all-nighters to study for finals, right. more likely to have parasomnias. So that insufficient sleep's important. Well, thank you so much for helping us understand more about it. It's Again, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. All right. Thank you. A Better Night's Sleep is produced by the Defense Health Agency. Please get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter at Military Health. Thank you so much for subscribing and rating us on iTunes or whatever it is you listen to podcasts. Please consider sharing us with your friends, your network. We would love to be able to share this information and send us your questions. And we hope you have a better night's sleep.